I tell you, do not worry about your life, but you will eat or drink, or about your body. What you will wear is, is not life more important than food, and the body is more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and you are not much more valuable than they. Who of you, when worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in, his, in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes grass, the grass of the field, which is here, today and tomorrow turn to the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, but tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The word of God for the world. Thanks be God. Needless to say, I did not succeed in three months. 
and the six years hence. Becoming a non-ancient presence, which is quite the chaplain word, buzzword, seems almost nearly impossible. And yet the gospel Jesus, in fact, doesn't just say not to worry, to worry he commands it. <coughs> he says, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, more than clothing? Well, that's a good question, Jesus, one that we've sort of been wrestling with in Sunday school this morning. I guess life is more than food and clothing and stuff, for that matter, but we do a pretty good job forgetting that. We get obsessed with what we're eating next, <laughs> what we're going to wear. As one said at Free For All, he used to stay up at night worrying about paying the bills. How many of you can relate to that? Isn't it true for most of us? We acquire more stuff and we worry about how to manage it. It only adds more stress when at the time we thought it would be the answer to our problems. The more I thought about it, the image of anxiety came to me like visualizing barnacles on my soul. Barnacles begin to wear this whatever object down until over time it changes the formation from an original form into something almost unrecognizable. That's what anxiety does. And I would argue that stuff, whatever that is that we cling to, whatever gets you anxious, whether it's material or non-material. Whatever we cling to in our life is compensating for an internal spiritual deficit. I want to say that one more time because that's sort of the thesis of all of this. That the stuff we cling to in our life is compensating for an internal spiritual deficit. And Jesus is pointing to this. If you're worried about stuff, it reflects that you're not filled somewhere else. There's this great story that Glenda shared at Free For All. And Free For All, for those of you who don't know, is where we gather to talk about the upcoming scripture. She told this story that's in a book called The Win Window Tree by a woman named Joan Marie Cook. And it tells the story of this author, Joan, who lives in a dorm with other girls. And in the last chapter, it tells of a student janitor named Annie from China. Joan becomes friends with Annie because she was curious and Annie was clean and good-spirited and she wanted to help her. See, all the other people kind of kept their distance from Annie. And in fact, on a weekend away that Joan had, she got a big box of clothing and she brought back some, some of these for Annie. So one day, she ushered Annie up with her with Joan's roommate Barbie and they all got in and this is what it says we were chattering excitedly about the surprise we had for her Annie's eyes grew wider and wider with each lovely thing we took from the box as we got out our pens and tape measure I noticed that Annie was trying to tell us something she stood in the middle of the clothes one frilly blouse still clasped absently in her brown hand her manner was so awkward, so embarrassed, it seemed, and I'm sure she felt it, too. 
We were practically strangers. I smiled at her, and I think she realized how very much I wanted to understand what she was thinking. She began shaking her head from side to side, and finally she said, I cannot be taking these things, for I not be needing them. I have two school things, one work thing, and one church thing. Barbie and I laughed, relieved. Oh, Annie, of course you don't exactly need them. But everyone has things he doesn't really need. It's fun to have lots of different things. But Annie was more serious than I had ever seen her. There be other people who not have so much as I. They should be having these. I not be needing them. I have two school things, one work thing, and one church thing, we know. Barbie was exasperated, and she couldn't hide it. But Annie, we want you to have these nice things. It will make us happier. <laughs> Annie sat very still and listened thoughtfully to all our comments. Her answer was always the same, but I not needing them. I knew all along it was no use. Annie liked her plain, clean dresses. They were all she needed. They were all she wanted. Finally, we persuaded her to take one brown sweater. And when she left, Barbie looked at me with tears of disappointment in her eyes. She's crazy. Everyone knows that possessing for the sake of possession is wrong. It's a principle. But no one lives like that. <laughs> I didn't say anything. And for the first time in my life, my closet looked sickeningly full. Several days passed, and then one evening I found a note under my door. The familiar scrawl, it was Annie. I hope you not be caring, but I gave the sweater to Ressy, who works at the nights at the dairy. I really not be needing it. Like I explained, I have two school things, one work thing, and one church thing. The gospel writer, in many ways, says the same thing. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies of the field. Let them be your teachers. And just when we think, how in the world could we not worry? Jesus answers before we have the chance to ask. He says, here's the remedy. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So the question becomes, what is our focus? What's the treasure of our heart? Matthew has spent some time right before this saying, where do you lay up treasures? In heaven or on earth? If we focus on God's kingdom, or a better way of saying that is God's reign, then we don't have time or need to worry. Because we know, as the great song says, He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. What it comes down to is most of us every day, whether we realize it or not, make decisions in every second whether or not to live in fear or to live in surrender trust to God. As I mentioned in Sunday school, this word for worry means, in the Greek, split attention. 
No wonder we're so schizophrenic. No wonder that toxic, anxious energy seems to wear us down. So you may ask, what does simplicity have to do with this? Well, we seem to make our lives and the gospel message, for that matter, much harder than it need be. Jesus says, stop worrying. Stop making it so hard. The birds of the air, they don't have grocery grocery carts. Lilies of the field, they grow. Not even Solomon. Remember Solomon and all his glory and all his wardrobes? They're not clothed like them. And if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? That's the word. That's where it turns. How, by worrying, can you add a single hour to your life? It puts it in focus, perspective. If we could see fear in those in, infant, infant, how do you say it? infinitesimal? Yes, that word. If we could see fear in every one of those choices as unproductive energy, we wouldn't choose it. We would take Jesus out of his word. We would try risking and seeking this kingdom of God. God's priorities, God's rules, which are pretty basic, pretty simple. Love God, love neighbor. God will worry about the rest. This church has been, as I've said, naming their values. We did it in a formal way in 2010. And a very strange one surfaced to the top, simplicity. As I said this morning, The word simplicity sort of encapsulates the fact that our church is a place of healing and renewal. People come here, they don't really want to be in another or 20 committees. They really don't want to be serving in a lot of different capacities that wear them down. We keep our institutional things lean. Remember, try to remember, to trust God, that God is good. And that God's kingdom stands nothing else. In fact, it says everything else is sinking sand. But to be sacred and simple as a church, we have to, here's the key, continually discern and seeking God's reign, God's kingdom, God's rule. I want to quote a very famous pastor named John Laney. He makes this point much better than I could. And he gave this sermon 57 years ago. It was his first sermon at what would become Twin Brook Baptist Church. He said this. St. Francis of Assisi, that great saint of simplicity, love, and poverty, was once being shown through the Vatican. As he was shown the treasures of this great institution with all its fabulous wealth, his guide remarked to him, Well, no longer must the church say, silver and gold, have we none? No, replied St. Francis, but neither can it say, take up your bed and walk. In other words, John says, as the church grew larger and more powerful, it had in reality become less powerful 
to meet the needs of people. Whenever the church has become obsessed with its own organization and has made the institution an end in itself, it has failed to perform its redemptive mission. Why am I saying all of this, he says? Merely to point out the fact that there is no virtue in organizing churches if this is an end in itself. And there is no value in adding members to our church roles if all we desire is to keep the church alive. The church, which really and truly is the church, has to be the redemptive force in society. Prophetic words for us to hear 57 years later. That a church is called to one purpose. Not to get larger. Not to just build more buildings. But to seek the kingdom of God. For everything else will be added unto it. We have to get it though in that order. Chronology matters. Otherwise, we get stuck. We'll get caught into something that's not a priority to God, but to us. And as Anne mentioned in Sunday school, so you got you got to watch what you say around here because I quote you. I find your words and I use them. Hopefully not against you. She said, what churches usually do is have their goal or mission and ask God to bless it. But we are reminded to seek what God is blessing and do that. Providence, we are called to the simple task of having the mind of Christ. Did I mention that simple didn't mean easy? Jesus took a long time to tell what the kingdom of God meant. What was that God's heart? What was he calling him to? If it wasn't to worry, if it was to seek a kingdom, what was it? It didn't mean a territory. It meant God's ruling power, sovereignty of love. And as we try as a church to discern this, may we continually ask ourselves, are we as a church acting seeking to love God and love neighbor. For this is the telltale sign of the kingdom. So may we seek first God's kingdom and righteousness. May our righteousness supersede that of the Pharisees. And all these other things will be added unto you.